Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Reid Guzens from RSN Property Group. Welcome back, Reid. Hi, Rama. How's it going, mate? Yeah, going well. Thank you very much. You came in episode 31. Uh, it's more than like one and a half years. So thank you very much coming back. Yeah, the pleasure, pleasure to be here and thanks for having me back. Sure, sure. And share me a little bit more about what you did in the last 18 months. Well, wow, last 18 months. Well, lots happened. We've exited a few deals. Um, I've also pivoted a little bit out of a partnership and, and you know, gone out a little bit on my own. Um, so a lot, a lot has happened in the last 12 to 18 months. And, and obviously, as you know, the, the markets have been going crazy with, um, with pricing in the last 18 months, but also now the market's going a little crazy with the interest rates and trying to control inflation. So a lot's going on. And it's, uh, there's a lot of as the old saying, there's a lot of pots on the stove. <laughs> a lot of spinning plates. Uh, so trying to keep trying to keep uh, abreast of all across all of them, and make sure I'm making the right investment decisions for my investors, and making sure that I'm leading my company in a way that uh, we're making just you know smart choices moving into the future. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So, what's your take on current market situation? Well, where do you want to start? Um, obviously, we've we've come out of a pandemic and one of the most craziest times I think in the last hundred years. Uh, where we the entire world was crippled by a, a pandemic, uh, which has caused a lot of problems through you know, through not only confidence in certain you know working environments, i.e. you know hourly workers, people who um, you know work in the hospitality industry, hotel industry, you know across the globe, there was you know mass people, you know, a lot of people who couldn't go to work, and it wasn't from any fault of their own. Um, but government's trying to sort of, you know, protect their citizens from uh, a global pandemic. That obviously led down the path of, you know, trying to boost up economies by by printing money, and and, and not only in this country, in the US, but but also across other countries, back in my home country in Australia, in Europe, a lot of people uh, stimulated the economy through printing money. Uh, now we've seen a return to, well, I don't want to say normalcy, but we've seen a, definitely a return. Uh, and we have, um, you know, massive in inflation, right? Yeah, so it's a problem when you print a lot of money. Uh, and, and also we're seeing other things, you know, wage growth has gone up, you know, dramatic, dramatically um, because there's less workers in, you know, in the environment today. I think there was a statistic out that 5 million people left the workforce in the COVID era. Um, I know my father back in Australia, he, he's in his mid-60s, he left the workforce and and because he, he could because he's retirement fund uh, grew so much that he decided not to go back. And so we're seeing inflation going crazy, obviously with more money. Uh, we're seeing um, you know, people leaving workforce, the workforce and then trying to replace those like millions of people, and that's been difficult. And then we're seeing the impacts of global supply chain. Uh, now we're also seeing you know, governments trying to react to you know, be seen to be doing something, i.e., you know, controlling inflation as best they can. 
uh, and, and you know, two levers that, that people have or the governments have is, is rising interest rates and, and, and controlling liquidity in the markets. And we're seeing that right now. The Fed is obviously increasing interest rates here in the States. I'm keeping my eye on what's happening in Australia. The same thing's happening back there and the same thing's happening in Europe. So when, you know, 2008, when you compare it to back to 2008, we're, we're at a different level. Like 2008 was, a, was a, an American problem that percolated around the globe through bad lending practices. Today, we are all at the same starting block. Every single country around the globe has the same problem in high inflation, you know, cost of living is going through the roof, uh, affordable housing is going through the roof. I know affordable housing is an issue in Australia, affordable housing is an issue in Canada, affordable housing is an issue here in the States. And so it's all sort of a little bit more of a level playing field, rather unlike 2008. Um, and so I, I, my, my opinion is that it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see what the next 12 to 18 months has in offer in terms of you know, governments trying to control that inflation. Um, but then having things outside of their control, i.e., global supply chain and um, and increasing uh, supply, you know, which is which is the global su- uh, supply chain demand. They've tried to you know you know make the demand grow by stimulating or printing money and stimulating putting putting money in people's pockets. Um, but now we're seeing that there's a lot of money in circulation, uh, and you know that's that's causing a bit of a problem on inflation right now. Uh, so that there's I've just said a lot a lot of things there, Rama. But th- that's the sort of that's what I'm looking at. That's how I'm trying to assess what I'm tr- doing moving forward. You know, it, it, buying real estate. You know, I, I still think the fundamentals of multifamily are still there. But how do I buy in a market where we've had low cap low cap rate environment for you know call it sub four sub three percent interest um, cap rates. And now we're starting to see interest rates go back, you know, between four and a half and five percent, and some people think it's going to go as high as six percent uh, in the next twelve to eighteen months. So it's it, it's a lot of things that are happening re- in really quickly. Pandemic happened really quickly. You know, people stopped working really quickly. Money printed really quickly. Now interest rates are changing really quickly. So it's it's all happening in real time. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm just trying to make the right and smart investment decisions. Uh, as as best I can uh, in in this time. Got it. Yeah. So uh, during like this inflation and higher interest rates and low cap rates. So how exactly you're planning your deals from investors' point of view, cash flow versus appreciation? You know. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think you know the fundamentals still 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 exist, right? What I'm looking for to do is, is buy assets that I can force the appreciation. So the last few years we've had you know redu- reducing cap rates, uh, which is where market appreciates, which means the market gets better, and that's been fantastic for my portfolio. But now moving forward, we we know cap rates are probably going to expand uh, with rising interest rates. So you really have to be buying assets that you know that you can truly add substantial value to, you know, and you can tr- and you can force that appreciation, i.e., forcing rents. So we look for properties where the in-place rent uh, is roughly around a thousand bucks, and we can then push that rent to about fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars over the next four to five years. And the reason we we look at that type of stuff is because I know that if I do the math, you know, the average household income in the U.S. is roughly about fifty-five to sixty thousand dollars. If I use the rule of three, meaning I divide their their third of their income should go towards uh, housing. Then you know fifty five thousand dollars divided by three divided by twelve months is roughly about fifteen hundred dollars a month. So when I'm buying in areas where the average household income is equivalent to the average U.S. household income, which is around you know again fifty to sixty five thousand dollars, then I know that I that my tenants or my 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 renters can pay that because it's a third of their income because that's the median household income. So if I'm keeping below those statistics, but also then pushing the in place rents by twenty or thirty percent, then I get to have my cake and eat it too. 
um, even in a rising interest rate environment. Now, I've got to factor that rising interest rate environment into my model, which means I've got to you know, factor in you know, variable interest rates, you know, rate caps, um, you know, exit cap rates have got to change. And, and, you know, I might be buying at a three and a half cap today, but I definitely got to be, you know, modeling a five uh, cap rate on exit, you know, in four or five years time. So all those things I'm trying to model out in real time, but I'm still believing that the fundamental of real estate, particularly of, you know, workforce housing in that thousand to $1,500 range is still needed across this country. And it's still needed across many countries. Um, it's just trying to solve for that uh, in real time. Yeah, great. Yeah, uh, that, that answers my question. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and what markets you are targeting right now, Reid? Um, so historically, I've been targeting Central Texas. Um, Central Texas is a fantastic market and a lot of growth. Uh, I'm also targeting other growth markets like Phoenix, um, like the Carolinas, parts of around Atlanta, really looking to where people are moving to and where jobs are being created. I think that's the most, the, fir- the first and foremost. But I'm also looking at a little bit more than just that. I'm looking at what the tax rate is happening in, in each market. When I mean by tax rate, you know, in Texas, they don't have an income tax, um, but they get you through real estate tax. Now, I can tell you that my you know, 20 to 25% of my P&L is just real estate tax. So I'm now looking at other states, i.e. Arizona, where their income, ta- where, where their real estate taxes are substantially a lot lower. And I can hang my hat and, and, you know, and take a bet on the fact that the year-on-year growth in real estate tax will not be as, as, as significant or as great as that of, say, a state like Texas. Um, coupled with that, you know, insurance costs are going through the roof. Um, again, I, I own portfolio in Central Texas. It was affected by the the Texas winter storm. Well, my insu- my insurance rates are going up. I'm now paying you know six seven hundred dollars a unit per year, where I used to pay three hundred dollars. Well, again, in states like Arizona, where they don't have a lot of um, you know, natural disasters, my insurance is a lot lower. So when I can hedge against you know, in, in rising insur- uh, insurance rates, rising tax rates, then, then I can make a better, safer decision for my investment. And I can couple it with the fact that it's in you know, a growing market and people are moving there and you know, the average household income is, is growing. Then those things I can then hedge, hedge against the downside. Uh, you know, should, should a recession come, and I think technically we are in a recession right now. Uh, if you look at you know slowing GDP, I should say. So overall, I started my portfolio in Central Texas. I've now, as I've got more wise, and as things are shifting so quickly again, you know, insurance, you know, insurance rates and and, and taxation rates. I'm now looking at other states where I can you know either do a tax abatement program or other states just have lower real estate taxes, lower insurance tax, uh, lower insurance. Got it. Yeah. And, and also, so what, what type of asset classes they are targeting and what, what class? Yeah. So uh, still in the class B, you know, again, that, that $50,000, $65,000 workforce housing. So 70s vintage, 80s vintage, 90s vintage. Uh, I'm not afraid of the older vintage stuff. Again, you know, th- this country and many countries need workforce housing. You know, uh, there's a lot of cranes in the air in a lot of these growing cities, which is great for class A multifamily. But but your class A multifamily, you you got to charge two two thousand twenty five hundred dollars rents. You know, with the cost of construction these days, and not every person can afford that when the average household income is again you know fifty to sixty five thousand dollars across the country. So buying those existing assets that might be a little bit longer in the tooth, and and rolling up the sleeves and dealing with the HVAC, dealing with the chillers, dealing with the you know new windows or new roof, 
uh, and breathing new life into these older assets is needed. Like I live in a house right now in Los Angeles. It was built in 1912. When I bought this house, I had to put a new roof on it. I had to put new electrical in it. I had to put new plumbing in it. I had to put a new HVAC in it. And I now this house can last for another 30 or 40 more years. I'm doing the same thing with these older assets. And you see a lot of people going, oh, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. Well, my background's in structural engineering. My background's in ground up construction. It doesn't, it doesn't scare me. Um, look at old cities like London, like Paris, like New York, like LA. These cities have very old buildings and they're still around today. And the reason they're still around is because people go in and, and invest money into them so they have longevity. And so I truly believe that these older vintage assets, which people run away from, are typically in better located areas. So you can, you know, you know as, as cities have expanded over the decades, you, you, if you buy a 1970 pro- product, you, you probably are, are sitting on better land basis. Um, and so you're know, going in there, rolling up the sleeves, doing the doing the ugly work that not everyone wants to do. I can handle, and, and also I have less competition. So they're they're sort of the reasons why. Again, I like the old, not the super old stuff, but the relatively older vintage stuff, and and I can sort of box in my risk based on my background. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Uh, and and also like you mentioned, you closed few few days event, complete full cycles. So would you share like what lessons you have learned? Oh, so many lessons. You know, one of the lessons I've learned is, is in the rising interest rate environment. So back in 2016, 17, if, you, if, if people remember, um, we were again in a rising interest rate environment. And I remember lo- locking in interest rates at four, I think it was four and a half percent for seven years. And this, I just sold a deal this year. We're coming to five and a half years of ownership. It was on a seven year term and I locked it back in 2016, 17. And I could have sold that deal three times over in the last, you know, five and a half years. But because of my prepay, I, I couldn't sell it, right? And so I learned very quickly that floating interest rate is still, if you buy it and you can buy a rate cap, is still one of the best options out there. Because even today when I sold that asset, I still have to pay over $1.3 million to break the loan. Now, my investors made a ton of money. They made an over an 18% IRA. It was fantastic. They nearly doubled their money in four, five and a half years. But I could have even given him even more money should I not have had to break that loan. So again, in the rising interest rate environment today, people may be panicking for going for the, the, the fixed rate debt. I don't know if it's if I believe that the exit pain that you come through to breaking that debt, depending if you get a step down prepay or if you've got a defeasance, depending on the loan, is worth than just going out and buying a rate cap, even if you're buying more for a rate cap today because rate caps are going through the roof. So there is a bit of an art versus science there, and not, not art versus science, a cost benefit analysis you need to do. But I have an example of a deal that I've just sold. I couldn't really, you know, if I tried to exit, you know, two years ago, it would have cost me even more money. Um, so, I, and, and this goes back to fundamentally that I do believe that we can't live in a high interest rate environment based on all the debt that the, the Fed has printed, uh, you know, money that they have. So, you know, higher interest rates, I don't think are going to be around for, you know, three or four years time. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a relatively um, short term pain, but, you know, we will get to some more back to more, some more moderate rates eventually. And historically, you look back, we're still at very low interest rates. So overall, some of the lessons I've learned back in, you know, locking interest rates can be good, but you also then have to think about your exit strategy and what it costs you to exit a deal uh, with certain types of exit parameters on there, i.e., you know, defeasance or step down prepays. So, yeah, I hope that answers that question. Yeah, definitely. I think interest rate is one of the important factor, right? So, bridge versus agency debt and a lot of prepayment penalty with, you know, going with agency debts. Yeah. 
And would you share any best experiences in the last 18 months? Best experiences. Oh, there's, there's so many. Like uh, you're coming full cycle on my very first deal, like that deal that I just spoke about, it was my very first deal I led as a, as a lead syndicator. Um, you know, five and a half, six years ago when I when I got into this business, I'd done other deals prior to that, but I, you know, it was Koji Ping. And it was lovely to see a deal come full cycle. I'm now, I'm now at 16 different deals that I've done in the portfolio and looking to continue to grow. And it's it's awesome to see you know that people took a bet on me all those years ago. I remember I was still working full time when I did my first syndication, and I was able to return their money with 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 some fantastic returns. I was a great steward of their of their capital, and that made me proud. So there was a lot of lessons I learned along the way in there. You know, like geez, you know, good property management. You know, if you don't have good property management, you know, you, you can make money when you buy, but you lose it pretty quickly through bad property and bad asset management. So being a hands-on with your, your your property manager and being hands-on with your asset management is extremely important. I spoke about the interest rate stuff, you know, and just making sure you, you, you're not relying heavily on the property manager and, you, and you're checking in all the time and making sure you know where, what, what your asset's doing. So I think there's a lot of operators out there that just sort of buy assets, think that they're just, you know, the property manager is going to run it, but they never run it as, as good as what an owner will run it, you know, or, or at least an owner who's paying attention. So I really do try and um, pride myself on hands-on management and, and pride myself on being an owner that is involved, not, not to the extent that I become, uh, you know, get in my own way, but, but, but to an extent that my property managers know that uh, they can call me at any time, I'm there to collaborate, we can talk about problems, uh, you know, I'd rather hear about problems early than late, you know, all those types of things um, uh, you know, ha- has set my company up. Uh, for success, and, and it has been lessons that I've learned along the way by by actively you know doing deals and operating deals. Yeah, got it. And it, and definitely, you know, uh, hiring right property management is the key for success in multiple yep. space. Yeah. And w- would you also share any challenging experience? Oh yeah, like I, I, challenging experiences. Yeah. Uh, I just actually uh, stepped away from a company that I co-founded, uh, Wildhorn Capital. Um, it was it was a hard decision to make, um, but ultimately, uh, my my co-founder and I we just didn't see eye to eye in terms of where we wanted to grow the company, and it was um, it, it, it was a tough you know it was like a like a breakup. It was like anything; it's emotional, um, and you know we still remain good friends today. But it's it's still tough to make that decision to walk away. Now I know the experience I've gained, the personal financial gains that I've made in the last seven, eight years has, you know, drastically outstripped any dreams that I thought, you know, getting into this business. Um, but it's still a tough pill to swallow when you have to walk away from, from, from a baby that you started. So, you know, but, but I know doing it to, you know, second time over, it will be different. And, and partnerships are really, really good when you're getting started. Um, and they're really, really good you know, to do deals. But I think as you grow as an entrepreneur and, and you start to have a little bit of money, you can start then using, you know, the reason you get into partnerships in the beginning is because you probably don't have a lot of money to pay for people, right? And so now as, as I grow, I've, I realize that I can now use the capital that I've made through the successful deals that I've exited. And, and instead of, you know, hoarding that money, going and investing in good people and a good team around me, um, that can help me, you know, get to my dreams. And so, um, it, it, you know, definitely challenging, um, but coming out the other side, uh, we'll come out the other side with flying colors. Cool. Yeah. Any personal habits that are helping you to be successful? So many personal habits. I've had to, you know, first and foremost, got to thank my wife. She's, she's, uh, she's my rock and, and, you know, such a, a good support for me. She's not in the business of multifamily, but she's also an entrepreneur. So she gets, she, she gets it. She gets, uh, and understands, you know, you know, you eat what you kill, so to speak, and we in the world of entrepreneurship. Um, and, and she's just been a really good sounding board. Uh, so she's great. But but also personal stuff I do. I, I obviously try and work out every day. 
Uh, and I also meditate every single morning um, to try and really control, you know, the, the chatter that goes on within, you know, within one's head. So um, overall, it's you know working out, having great relationships um, that that I can that I can rely on, and then you know um, using meditation as a as a real tool to help me um, set my mind up for for success and, and set myself up for successful to be successful in the day. Got it. Yeah. And any one personal learning that has played a part in creating massive impact and powerful shifts in our own life. I think you know the biggest lesson along all this entire journey has been. Unfortunately, I lost my mother. It's come up to five years. In 2017, she passed away, and and in 2017, I just done my first that deal. I just spoke. I just did my first I think two deals syndication. I was still working full time. I just got married, and she was really sick with cancer. And then she's back in Australia, and I was traveling back and forth to try and be with her. And it was uh, it was an eye opening moment that you know we are only on this planet for a very short period of time, um, and we have to enjoy the journey. And I remember being, you know, just flogging myself to death to try and, you know, get to where I needed to achieve, you know, where I thought I needed to be. And, but also just realizing I need to enjoy the journey. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, Rita, when you're at 80 years of age and you've got your grandkids running around, does it matter if you, you know, have a thousand units in 2017 or a thousand units in 2020? And the answer is it doesn't matter. You're there for them. You want to be present. So I think there's a lot of thing, you know, we get so consumed with, success and drive, drive, drive and climbing the mountain. But there's always going to be another mountain to climb, um, regardless of whatever the success looks like. But you sometimes stop and enjoy the journey and through meditation, through being self-aware and through having personal loss, I think that is um, has, has definitely been a big, you know, eye opener for me to, 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 to stop and and, and, and appreciate what I do have, because, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I get to choose to do what I, what I do. Um, and I'm very fortunate to be in the position I am today. You know, I, I have built that from scratch, um, but I need to also, you know, have other pillars in my life rather than just my business. I need to have my physical, you know, my health, my relationships, my, you know, my, 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 my relationship with my, with my wife and my family. And I also have the pillar of being of my business, you know, so I'm not just defined by one thing. I have, I've had multiple pillars that can help support me, uh, in life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Great. And any books, uh, you recently read had impact on you? Oh, so many, so many books. Obviously, Rich Dad Poor Dad's a big one that got me started. Um, one that I love, you know, more from a, you know, not necessarily mindset, but but in terms of branding, uh, was Key Person of Influence by Dan Priestley. He's an Australian author. Definitely recommend getting your hands on that. I think I think he gives out a free copy. I've actually interviewed him a couple of times on my, oh, sorry, one time on my podcast. And um, he talks a lot about how you become a key person of influence in your sphere, regardless of whatever business you're in, you know, creating platforms, creating online identities will help you become recession proof because people trust you and what you do. Now you don't have to be Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss, but you can be a key person of influence within your sphere and people come to you, you know, for advice on whatever you do, you know, whether it be a dentist or a real estate investor or, you know, uh, a carpenter, <laughs> you know, they will come to you because they, they see you as, as, as a thought leader in the space. So it's it, key person of influence is a, is a great book. Good. And how can listeners can connect with you, Reed? Easiest way is to go to reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. And you can reach out to me there. You can also reach out to me, info at reedgoosens.com. Um, that's the best way to reach out. I've got a podcast called, called Investing in the US. It's been going for over seven years. 
And if you're ever coming through Los Angeles and want to hit me up, just uh, shoot me an email at that info at reedgoosens.com and uh, we can tee it up and get on the schedule. Awesome. And thank you, Reed. And thanks for sharing your perspective on current market situation, supply, demand, inflation, interest rates, and also lessons you learned from going full cycle. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.